0: You're listening to West Coast Water Justice, where we talk about water in the Western United States. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer. And today we'll be talking with Beth Rose Middleton Manning, Professor of Native American Studies at UC Davis.
1: Thank you for having me. My name is Beth Rose Middleton Manning, and I am a professor in the Department of Native American Studies at University of California, Davis, which is located in Putwin Homelands in Central California. I am Afro-Caribbean and Eastern European, or black and white, more simply, and I was born and raised in Miwok country in Amador County in the Northern California foothills. And I work on native land and water issues and how conservation law and policy can be modified or applied to support indigenous goals, which may include land stewardship and water stewardship and protection and access and ensuring that lands and waters are healthy and not contaminated. Uh, So so those are some of the topics I work on from an environmental policy and environmental justice lens.
0: Well, thank you so much, Beth Rose. I'm wondering if you can tell us about your work and how it relates to water and land rights in California and how Native lands and communities have been treated as sacrifice zones for national priorities of irrigation, flood control, and hydroelectric
1: development. Yes. So that sounds like it might be a line from Upstream, which is the book that I was able to publish in 2018. Uh, Upstream, Trust Lands and Power on the North Fork Feather River. And that book is really just a slice of a much larger project to try to understand what happened to Mountain Maidu lands in particular, but also to some extent to Pit River and Washoe lands surrounding to the sides of Mountain Maidu homelands. I was especially concerned with the large reservoirs at the headwaters of the North Fork Feather River. And how that land came to be flooded, who was displaced in that flooding, and whether or not they received any restitution for what happened. I started working on that through working at Sierra Institute for Community and Environment, which was forest community research and shared office space with the Maidu Cultural and Development Group. That was back in about 2000. And I was volunteering with the Maidu Cultural and Development Group. And Lorena Gorbett in particular, who's a Mountain Maidu elder, she had hand-drawn a map of parcels under what is now Lake Almanor, near Comiamonim, or what is known as Mount Lassen, in northeastern California, and was looking at what had happened to those lands. How had they left Mountain Maidu access and jurisdiction and stewardship? And it seemed that some of the history was kind of unclear, that there wasn't really solid documentation about how those lands were seized and whether or not there was any restitution. So she and I went to archives. I also worked with Farrell Cunningham, Yatam, who's also Mountain Maidu, and others. And I spent a lot of time at the federal archives and at private archives going through these property histories. And generally what I found was that a series of business owners in particular who saw the potential of developing the North Fork Feather River Canyon to produce hydropower to power the new city of San Francisco downstream this is around the turn of the century, saw a great opportunity and were able to bypass any protections as weak as they were really for indigenous lands, primarily mountain Maidu lands there at the headwaters and get those properties, uh, get the timber harvested and sold, and then flood that land in order to create hydropower and later water storage to facilitate downstream agriculture and development. And in many, many cases, there was no restitution that ever reached the hands Of Mountain Maidu people from that area and in fact there's quite a bit of documentation of people trying to advocate either to keep their land and not be displaced or for restitution and it seemed that it says very directly in some cases that there was no payment provided. Sometimes even if payment was provided it went into individual Indian monetary accounts which never found their way to the beneficiary. In fact, those accounts were the subject of the Cobell lawsuit um, in the early 2000s. So it's a very upsetting story and one that is not at all unique to the North Fork Feather River. It's mirrored on the Pitt River, up in Shasta County, and in many different counties in Northern California, and really throughout north america any place where there's a reservoir or hydroelectric projects almost without fail you see displacement disregard for indigenous peoples and indigenous homelands removal Um, so this is the story i was looking at in upstream and was bearing witness to and for me it was an important story To tell in part because I grew up in the Sierra Nevada foothills, uh, familiar with the reservoirs and the dams and the hydropower systems and felt like people need to understand the water that that we use every day when we turn on the tap in the valley or in the cities throughout California or turn on irrigation on crops Um, really comes at the cost of Indigenous peoples, homelands, and communities. And we need to look at that squarely and figure out ways to address it.
0: Wow. So I'm really interested in this. So, what happened then? Like,
1: they just got pushed off the land? Well, people are still there and they, you know, are still within their homelands. But in some cases, I'm thinking in particular in the North Fork Feather River watershed, Mountain Maidu country. Up until just very recently, there was no collective Mountain Maidu land base. There are two federally recognized tribes in Plumas and Lassen counties, Greenville Rancheria and Susanville Rancheria. They're both uh, multi-tribal, not only Mountain Maidu, other tribes as well. And they are areas of land that were set aside for so-called homeless California Indians. Um, After the turn of the century, After the treaties were found, the treaties that were never ratified, and it was recognized that there was a problem, that there was no land ever set aside for indigenous peoples in this area. So, with those small land bases, multi tribal land bases aside, there's still, up until just a few years ago, no recognized Mountain Maidu homeland. So, there was never anything done about this land seizure and flooding and all the layers of development that have occurred within their homelands. Uh, but over the last 20 years, the Maidu Summit Consortium in particular has participated in the Stewardship Council process, which is a pg land divestiture process, and they were able to successfully advocate for several different parcels. In Tasmam Koyam or Humbug Valley and around Big Meadows or Lake Almanor, uh, which are now have been transferred to the Maidu Summit Consortium. So, that very recent transfer, just within the last five years, um, represents the first, first transfer of lands or return of lands to Mountain Maidu people as an entity um, since contact. So, it's very significant. And similar land transfers have happened up in Pitt River country. One was just celebrated earlier this month.
0: Okay. Yeah. I think Morningstar was telling us about that. I guess I'm not really sure what is the Maidu Summit Consortium. Is that, that's not a rancheria or a federally recognized reservation, but that's
1: like an organization? Yes. It's a nonprofit organization composed of nine I believe it's nine Mountain Maidu entities that includes two federally recognized tribes, Greenville and Susan O'Rancheria's, as well as uh, petitioning tribes, tribes working on federal recognition, Maidu nonprofit organizations like the Roundhouse Council Indian Education Center and the Maidu Cultural and Development Group, and Maidu community-based organizations. So all coming together across Mountain Maidu homelands to advocate for site protection and, and cultural rights and community
0: development. I have so many questions, but can you tell us what you've learned through your studies on the Feather River and hydropower? Are things changing or what's going on now with that?
1: Mm, That's a great question. So what I learned was really sobering, you know, in a couple different ways. One is that so few people are, are, taught this history or really aware of this history. There's a lot of historical amnesia, particularly in natural resources and conservation policy. Uh, You know, some of my early conversations with land managers, there were kind of broad statements made. Well, this has always been the electric company's land, for example, really a lack of attention to the very, very recent and ongoing displacement and disruption within indigenous communities and nations that are still very much present in those places, even though they don't have jurisdiction over homelands and waters. So that is of great concern to me in terms of thinking about how do we address that in education um, and in training future natural resource stewards um, so that they're not assuming this sort of blank slate. And so there's clear knowledge of How colonialism has been enacted through infrastructure and natural resources development so that we can address it. So that's that's one issue. I think something that I've been working on lately, a a new project is about um, tribal leadership in dam removals and river restoration which is a very hopeful direction. I think a lot of the work on upstream was quite frustrating uh, going through the archives and seeing just the ways in which indigenous knowledge, indigenous needs were really disregarded by policymakers. I think now we're in a, a very different time with really strong tribal leadership and advocacy um, Really making powerful moves in. In working to change water policy, and I see these dam removals happening. I'm reading about an incredible partnership in Maine right now. We know about the incredible work happening on the Klamath. I was recently up in Alaska and visited the Oklutna River, where the native village of Oklutna has partnered with conservation organizations and, along with the native corporation, removed one dam and are working on a plan to restore flows in a river that had been completely dewatered by a hydropower and water supply project so I see a lot of positive change in that area I think there's still a lot of work to do but I feel optimistic
0: Wow, that's really cool to hear about that there's all these other projects and as someone that also grew up close to where you're talking about I didn't learn very much about this at all in my education that's why I'm interviewing you Um, so I think that is super important So thank you. Could you just maybe say again, if you already did, like the years that Native Americans have been in that area for like, what, 13,000 years or more?
1: Yes. Thank you. That's a great question. I mean, I think throughout California, people know themselves to be created in their places. So I think of it as since time immemorial, you know, and really dependent on their different narratives of creation in their homelands. And it's such a different relationship with water than the one that came with settlers. It's a relationship of relationality and personhood and and uh, almost one with a relative, for example, which is not meant to sound um, far-fetched at all. It's very practical. It's a very practical kinship relation. Whereas I think the settler view is much more about use, something that's outside of yourself that you apply to to a particular end, and it doesn't have a personhood and you're not in relation with it. And I think that's foundational to the problem um, and the disjuncture that we have with water today. And to speak more specifically about dates, I mean, California has experienced three waves of colonization, Spanish, and then mexican and then american and i can't really speak to the water rights systems during the mission period or the mexican period but speaking of the american period you know very much this notion of appropriative rights so the first entity to put water rights to a particular use then received a title to that Water. And back in 1851 and 1852, not long after statehood, that was the land claims period. So white male settlers could file on parcels of land and water rights would typically go with those parcels whether they were riparian because they flowed alongside the parcel or they were appropriative and the water was diverted for a particular use i think we still see many elements of this system today you know some of what are seen as the most senior water rights holders are the the Ancestors or the the corporate founders, you know, from the 1850s and their descendants now have senior water rights today rather than indigenous peoples being recognized as having senior water rights. Um, Indigenous water rights typically date to when the reservation was established or the land base was recognized and set aside according to the Winters Doctrine from Winters v. U.S. in 1908. There's been some really interesting cases in the last few years. I mean, Agua Caliente comes to mind in particular. The cases in 2015 and 2017 that dealt with groundwater and the tribe's concern about contamination of groundwater in the Coachella Valley. And the reason I mention that Case is because they invoked two sets of rights. one, the winter's right, the 1908 you know doctrine that dates back to when their land base uh, was set aside for Agocaente. And um, the date that date, being the date uh, that the water rights date back to, so the winter's rights. And then the other right they asserted was Aboriginal right, that as people from that place since time immemorial, they have a right to to the waters of that place I believe the court accepted the 1908 Winters rights, but not the Aboriginal right. But it's important to continue to invoke that. It's really a question of justice. Why should the you know white settler who filed in 1851, why should that be a senior right, more senior than when the federal government recognized the tribal land base, even though the tribe, the indigenous nation had been there since way before the settler arrived. So that's a, a broader a broader question of justice. Another way in which I see the water right system active in the present is the concept of beneficial use. So the first to put water to a beneficial use has then, you know, a right to that water. And there are specific beneficial uses. And then water quality objectives flow from, you know, the recognized beneficial uses. And just in the last decade you know it was i believe 2017 that the two tribally specific beneficial uses took effect along with a third beneficial use that's around subsistence more broadly so there's the two tribally specific beneficial uses are tribal subsistence and tribal cultural use and then the third subsistence use is broad, not only Indigenous, but other populations, maybe low-income populations who are dependent on local fisheries. So considering these diverse relationships to water and beneficial uses is only a much more recent uh, phenomenon. So I think that's important to recognize.
0: Yeah. So just to make sure I'm understanding, so you're saying that the first
1: water rights Did that come from the Winter's Doctrine? I think the tribally recognized water rights are codified in the Winter's Doctrine in 1908, which states that the date the reservation was established, it carried with it a water right. And so that date occurred before 1908 in many cases, you know, maybe in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, whenever the reservation was established, it came with a water right. But a lot of times those water rights aren't yet quantified. They are reserved rights that can displace other users, but it takes a lot of time and financial support sometimes to quantify exactly what that water right is.
0: Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the Winter's Doctrine. That sounds really important, and I don't know very much about it. Is that important to, to know about?
1: It is important, I think, for tribal water rights, but I think on the other hand, it's It can be frustrating because it only pertains to federally recognized land bases. So it could be set aside for a federally recognized tribe, like a reservation or rancheria, or it could pertain to an individual uh, allotment, which is also held in trust. But for a non-federally recognized tribe, the Winter's Doctrine doesn't really apply, although it would apply for individual allottees who may be members of a non-federally recognized tribe. But without getting too much into the weeds, I can say that uh, this is a 1908 case took place in Montana on the Milk River. There were settlers that were diverting water upstream from tribal lands, and it was impacting the tribal lands. And so the court case dealt with whether or not that was permissible. And the ultimate decision, and I'm just going off the top of my head here, but the ultimate decision was that the tribe's land base, when set aside by the federal government, was to include a water right because it was to be a place where people could live, where they could farm, you know, with the model of kind of trying to push people into a western sort of agriculture. So oftentimes that water right, initially anyway, dealt with the type, the amount of acreage that was irrigable in order to sustain that land base. It wasn't based on the number of people, the number of tribal members. It was based on the land itself. And it's a reserved right such that uh, it, it remains, even if not exercised.
0: Okay, thanks for explaining that. And then it sounds like before that winter's doctrine that The white settlers, they were the only ones that could get land claims, and they were just taking the water as much as they could?
1: Yes, that's how I would see it.
0: That's unfortunate. Is that basically where the term water rights came from? Is it from the Winter's Doctrine, or...?
1: I don't know if it's where it came from, and in fact, sometimes the fo- I, winters is helpful. I'll say it's it can be an important tool. I think of Walter Echohawk's sword and shield. Like it, it's a shield. It, it can help protect indigenous waters. At the same time, I feel like it can get too narrow and problematic. So, for example, when I was looking at some of the history of Oroville Dam and Concow lands that were impacted by the flooding at Oroville and then, you know, salmon and other species not being able to get upstream past that huge dam there. When I was looking at the water resources archives, the reference to tribal rights, um, and this is in the 50s, 60s, was limited to, I want to say one parcel that was a parcel that was held in trust for an individual Native person and the restitution for this, the flooding of that parcel and the taking of the rights associated with that parcel, which to me is incredibly frustratingly narrow because a whole, a whole multiple nations of Indigenous people were impacted by Orville Dam. And it's certainly, you know, consideration of that and the restitution should not be limited to a single parcel, but all of the multifaceted cultural and subsistence and historical and livelihood and relational impacts of the flooding and dam construction and the existence of the dam there. Okay, I see.
0: So it's not really taking into consideration like how people were moving and um, collaborating amongst the tribes in that area.
1: Yeah, it can get overly narrow, I think. And in California, too, one of the challenges is because Treaties were not ratified, and in many areas, large land bases were not set aside and protected for indigenous peoples. That there are many places where, you know, they were homelands, they are homelands, they're culturally important places, there are important foods there, there are resources that need to be cared for, but they're not within tribal jurisdiction. Uh, and so that creates A lot of challenges and barriers. That's where a lot of my work looks at, like access protection and stewardship issues for lands that have been seized and are now in public or private ownership. Okay,
0: well, that kind of leads into our next question. You've talked a little bit about the history and water rights in California over the last 200 years, but who's benefiting from the current land rights? I mean, I guess if you can tell us a little bit about why there aren't treaties um, for some tribes or why they weren't ratified or why some tribes aren't federally protected. Sounds like it's strategic.
1: Sure. I can definitely come back to treaties. I wanted to respond to your question about who's benefiting because I think it's an important question because on on one hand, you know, you have certain corporations or certain entities that are benefiting more than others. And then on the other hand, you also have kind of the diverse, diffuse public benefiting from a system in which, you know, water comes through our tap and is in our, you know, municipal systems, residential systems. But I think based on people's values and an understanding of human rights, that we wouldn't have chosen the system to be built the way that it was. Um, in a way that displaced and impacted Indigenous peoples so heavily and continues to do so today. And also has really upended the ecology of the North State and the the Sierras um, in particular. So, but back to the treaties Um, in 1851 through 1850 and 1852, uh, three federal agents were sent by the federal government to negotiate treaties with indigenous peoples of California. And this was right after statehood. We had a very racist first governor, Peter Burnett, in his opening address, he talked about extermination of indigenous Californians. He had a racist history. I recently read his autobiography. He also was very much anti-black. Um, so a lot of a very problematic figure. And it was during his tenure and during this period of intensive legalized violence toward California Indian people that these three commissioners came out from the federal government, negotiated with people that they determined to be in a leadership position in their different nations. Really not having an understanding of how diverse California was and how different polities were organized, that they negotiated with people they determined to be in a leadership role. and in that negotiation, people thought that they were negotiating in good faith and that they would have protected areas where, you know, they there wouldn't be incursions of settlers moving within their homelands or violating their places or their life ways or committing violence against them. Uh, many of the treaty agreed upon areas were in the central valley or you know out of the foothills out of the mountains away from some of the gold mining areas where you know with the gold rush there was a huge influx of miners many of whom were violent towards indigenous people i should say too i always want to be sure to note that people always were strong and smart and navigating these systems and they were figuring out how to maintain their families and protect their families. And they were working on ranches and they were working on mining claims and they were struggling and they were surviving. I never want to paint a picture that is all about um, victimization. But at the same time, you know, from stories I've heard from people I know and who are part of my extended family, it was a horrible time. There was a lot of violence, there was shooting on site, there was no self-representation, there was was communication in languages, you know, that people didn't understand, and then the seizure of their homes, uh, and even their children. So it was a horrible time. And I mentioned that to note that this is the context in which the so-called treaty negotiations took place. But even those negotiations and the documents they resulted in when they were sent back to Washington, D.C., there was lobbying from the state of California because it was seen that that land was too valuable and they wanted it for settlement and expansion of the new state. And so without communicating back to the people who negotiated the treaties, some of whom may have moved, felt that they were insured of getting protected places to be um, without letting them know the treaties were not ratified and they were locked away. They were hidden in Washington, D.C. And it wasn't until the turn of the century that they were found, that they were uncovered by one of, it was, I think, an Indian advocacy organization. And so it wasn't until that time and then some reports and studies and looking at the you know, conditions in which people were living, which were very difficult, in the turn of the century and this is off after also periods of violence and massacre and disease and displacement between the treaty-making period and the and when the treaties were uncovered around the turn of the century 1905 so after that the government made appropriations to set aside small areas of land for so-called homeless california indians that different people could move on to if they chose. And those were the foundation of many of the rancherias in California today. So you might have people from different nations who were working or living in a place or had family ties, living on a rancheria on the land base set aside as a place for Native people to live. Other people who may have been living on the ranches where they were working or in homes where they were working did not necessarily move on to the rancherias, which became problematic later because if they weren't uh, recorded as living on the rancheria, they may or may not be a member of what later became federally recognized tribes based on who was living on the rancheria. So it's a complex history. Uh, that's just a little little snapshot, always suggest talking to people who, you know, whose relatives live that history. Um, I see my role as trying to understand as much as I can about it as someone who, you know, grew up here and lives here and feels a responsibility to understand the truth of settler colonial history and context and try to make sure others understand it as well.
0: Yeah, thank you. I am learning a lot and that is a really unfortunate history. All this was basically set up and all the rules were set up so that mostly white men could own land and then control all the resources, it sounds like.
1: Yes. And, you know, one thing that was super interesting to me when I was looking at what happened on the North Fork Feather River watershed was that you know these companies like red river lumber company which was clearing the parcels selling the timber and then transferring to great western power company and other power companies that were predecessor companies to pacific gas and electric but that these were not like isolated companies or very small entities but it was bankers that were known across the united states some from the east some from san francisco who were funding these efforts. And I didn't really learn until I was able to go to the Red River Lumber Company archives in Minneapolis and, and look at some of the history written by a geographer named Steiner at CSU Long Beach in the eighties that like that lumber company, the owner of that lumber company was one of the richest people in the nation, maybe even the world um, at that time around the early 20th century. And just really put into relief for me the ways people built fortunes off of Indian land that they acquired at no cost. Kind of very similar, I mean, as an African-American, as a Black person, I think about, you know, the accumulation of wealth off of free or unpaid slave labor. Very similar in terms of the accumulation of wealth off of land and thinking about the ways that accumulation of wealth extends into the present. You know, that some of the same corporations or the heirs to those corporations, they still hold a lot of wealth. Whereas the peoples whose lands were seized and whose labor was seized because there was indentured servitude and effective slavery of indigenous peoples in California as well. So the ways in which those communities don't have the wealth, still don't have the land base, I mean, it's so clear when you start looking into it and it becomes, like to me, I felt a, a driving force to try to really share this information, that it wasn't just something that happened 100 years ago, but we're still looking at the consequences today with the lack of Maidu land base and lack of recognition of this history.
0: Thank you for saying that. And it's still being perpetuated to date. We haven't talked on the podcast a bunch about the Feather River, how does that and this topic in general tie into the State Water Project and the Central Valley Project? And
1: where's all the water going? So my focus has been on the North Fork Feather River. And the North Fork Feather River is the headwaters of the State Water Project. There are two large water projects in california the central valley project which is federal and the you know the headwaters are up at uh shasta dam and uh, the upper sacramento you know stretching the mcleod and the pit are some of the rivers that feed into the central valley project the trinity as well Um, and then i have focused more on the state water project for which the north fork feather river and the the impoundments on the North Fork, including Oroville Dam, and then further upstream, um, Antelope Lake, Big Meadows uh, Dam, or or Almanor Dam, uh, are some of the facilities on that project. And those, both of those projects, funnel water downstream. Um, they are routed through the delta, through a whole problematic infrastructure uh, and water serves agriculture throughout the central valley particularly the southern central valley and then is pumped over the tehachapis and serves the los angeles basin and even all the way down to san diego so it's a, a huge set of systems two principal systems that aim to address the fact that most of the water is in the upper part of the state and in the Sierras and falls, you know, or or accumulates in the winter and the spring, but is then impounded and funneled and managed in order to serve where most of the population is, which is in Southern California and where most of the industry and agriculture is, which is in the central Valley in Southern California, and to some extent in the Bay area. So, That's kind of a a big overview of the systems. Interestingly enough, when I was doing research on the State Water Project, I came across a whole series of documents that are around questioning this concept of um, what was called unjust enrichment that there would be certain entities in the Southern Central Valley that would benefit greatly from having low cost water deliveries. Uh, to develop agricultural lands. So there's a whole lot of political debate and discussion about that, and I wrote about it a little bit in Upstream, and there's a couple other books that talk about it. And it was just interesting to, because I'm interested in the way public and private overlap. So, for example, looking at the history of the North Fork Feather River, the initial series of dams, the Stairway of Power, that was built by a private company, by Great Western Power Company. Later, that system was Built upon and expanded, and also part of the State Water Project, which is, you know, state funded, and there's also some federal support. and interface between the state and the federal with the State Water Project and the Central Valley Project. So it's always interesting to me to see how and when public and private blur, and and who benefits from public investment. And I also want to think about, you know, the fact that there's been broad public acceptance of these systems. So even though I I feel like there are certain entities that are definitely making revenue off of the delivery of water and are making a lot of profit, there's also a broad public that accepts these systems and uses this water. So it's, a, I think, a much deeper process of kind of unpacking how we got here and thinking about how systems could be redesigned such that they are not disregarding indigenous homelands and waters and lifeways or ecological systems and yet still somehow supporting the California population.
0: So basically that we could ask for more and for change.
1: That, and I also think that we're part of the problem, <laughs> like we're, we're part of the problem and the solution. I could just speak for myself. I mean, I turn on the tap and use water in the Central Valley and that water is coming at the cost of Headwaters' homelands. And so really thinking about how was a system designed in that way? And how could it be changed such that that is not the case? Well, on that note, do you have any better ways
0: for us to manage the water rights or any innovative solutions to use and manage
1: water in the state? Well, I don't feel like I have the answers, but a couple things come to mind. Upstream restoration, I think, is super important. Really investing in uh, stewardship projects in the headwaters, which might involve, you know, really bringing back cultural burning, prescribed fire, you know, so that we open up meadows, raise the water table, improve the health of upstream ecosystems, I think improves water holding capacity throughout the whole system. I'm really interested in creative ways to deal with all of the impacts of dams and reservoirs, both the impacts on stopping species migration, but also the impacts in terms of contaminants and the flourishing of of blue-green algae and the microcystins that come with it. So I don't know the answers necessarily, but I am I really want to explore them, whether it's putting in fish passage or thinking about which reservoirs we can remove, you know, to really improve ecosystem health. And then how do we do water storage in a sustainable manner? Um, how, how about returning lands that have been seized from Indigenous peoples for these different projects? You know, looking at Shasta Dam and Winamum Wintu struggles to stop the raise of Shastadam is a really good example. Why would we invest in the same system that caused layers of injustice? Why would why would we collectively as public that are contributing through our tax dollars to some of these projects, why would we continue to displace Winam Wintu peoples? I mean that is a, a violence that was done that should be rectified, not exacerbated, um, not, uh, you know, and also to say that climate change, the systems are changing. It doesn't necessarily make sense to have these reservoirs and water conveyance structures that, the way that they are. Um, I feel like there should be more investment in, in thinking about smart solutions that might look very different, but might still involve water catchment and storage, but maybe at a much smaller localized scale. I think bigger is not always better.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with you. We would just like to hear more about how we can learn more about your work or any way we
1: can get involved to learn more. Well, thank you for asking. Let's see. I'm just grateful to have had the opportunity to share with you today. I am excited about this new project, looking at at potential dam removal and river restoration, I think there's so many exciting initiatives to be celebrated. I mean, it's not it's not really my work, but really just pointing out this awesome work that's happening. For example, you know, Te Land Trust in the East Bay and their their resilience projects that really are developing hubs of of cultural sovereignty and food security within an urban space. Um, the work of Amamutsun Land Trust implementing cultural fire and their, and their stewards crew, um, the Maidu Summit consortiums work to restore upper watersheds. I've recently been um, able to work with a funder that's funding climate adaptation projects and there's some really exciting you know, tribal collaborations that are restoring upper meadows both with the use of fire and the use of removal of, of barriers of dams but also the construction of beaver dam analogs and reintroduction, reintroduction of, of species that were historically there that have been displaced by water infrastructure as well as timber infrastructure. So there's so many exciting projects happening. I think I just encourage people to look in their areas um, at tribally-led projects and, and grassroots projects that are focused on restoration and sustainability in ways that center justice and inclusion.
0: Thank you so much. That's really important. And if people want to learn more about your work...
1: Oh, I'm at UC Davis in Native American Studies and welcome people to reach out uh, via email anytime.
0: Well, yeah, I just want to thank you so much for your time and the work that you're doing and for educating me. And hopefully this information is helpful to other people.
1: Well, thank you very much. I, I hope um, I was able to share some useful information and I really appreciate your time and your work.
0: Thanks again. That was Beth Rose middleton Manning at UC Davis, professor of Native American Studies. You've been listening to West Coast Water Justice, produced by me, Natalie Kilmer. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The music is from the album Now That's What I Call Surf by Tony Bald, Adam Anigias, and Danny Snyder.